The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Forsyth Bar Limited or Forsyth Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Forsyth Bar or Forsyth Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast. Uh, hello and welcome to the Doing Business in China podcast. My name is David Milhouse and I am Head of China Research at Forsyth Bar Asia. So as you know, generally in this podcast, we like to talk about topical areas in China and interview people which are doing business in that area. And today I want to talk about risk to China economically. And it's my pleasure to be joined by Christopher Balding, who I've known for a little while. Now, Christopher is a professor at Peking University HSB Business School and is a longtime student of of the China economy. Um, he's very well followed on Twitter. He has over 10,000 followers and he also writes a very well followed blog and a column on Bloomberg on the China economy. Chris, welcome. Thank you for having me. So I want to start on the economy more broadly and I'll lead this off with post the party congress there was an article in Xinhua News talking about the long term outlook for the China economy and it said specifically post 2020 for the next 5 to 10 years the economy will be able to achieve at least 6% GDP growth due to improvements in industrial structure upgrading of consumption and continuing progress on urbanization so Interested in your view on all these sort of three drivers and what you see the risk to them being economically. So if, if, if I understand uh, that, it says basically through 2030, um, 6%. I, I think that's uh, decidedly optimistic. And, and there's a number of reasons, and some of them are just uh, purely structural. Um, just to give you an idea is one structural issue. The Chinese labor force started declining. And it's, it's right now, it's a very gentle decline. But it started declining in about 2011, 2012 or so. And, so if we're, and, and that decline is going to continue to essentially pick up up speed, like a little bit of a snowball going downhill. Um, so between 2020 and 2030, that is when it's really going to hit its peak. 2025 is when it's really going to start um, heading downhill. And so for to see real growth above that, um, after you factor in population, as, as one simple example of structural factors, it's very difficult to see how 6% is going to be a reality with the, with the population pressures that they're facing. There's other issues, you know, just, just to give you an idea, we often think of China as an incredibly educated society. And, you know, we meet, you know, the type of people we meet are, you know, they studied in Australia, they have advanced degrees, they they run businesses, things like this. But the reality of it is, is that even today, only about two thirds of Chinese students finish high school. And it's simply going to be increasingly difficult to move into those higher income earning jobs, you know, whether it's just a semi-skilled uh, manufacturing plant or um, a hotel worker or something like that, if only two-thirds of your workers are fin- finishing high school. Leaving aside the more policy-type things that you know a lot of people think about, I think there are just you know, basic structural factors that are going to make that increasingly hard to do. Focusing on things like the industrial structure and stuff like that, this is something that is widely talked about in China, but it is not something that we've really that we've really seen yet. Um, you know, if we use you know something that people talk about a lot, supply side reform, um, we really in in reality haven't seen um, supply side reform. A lot of plants taken off. 
operating rates, if you take any type of moving average at, at most uh, ferrous and non-ferrous metal mills, are lower now than, than in 2015. This indicates to us that you know there's simply not the amount being taken off that needs to be taken off to seriously address that issue. Fixed asset levels in these industries remain beneath what they were at their peak, but you know still decidedly high. And so by the time you factor in how much are they taking off and how much are they adding every year, what we're basically seeing is that they're not addressing that today. Um, there was a great article in the Financial Times today of, by one estimate, there's going to be $100 billion in essentially dead assets in steel. Uh, is it steel or coal? I forget. I apologize. Um, that essentially is, is is not going to be used again. And that is attached to a financial asset, whether it's, you know, pure equity, whether, you know, that plant is funded with a mix of debt and equity, something like that, that needs to be addressed. And so if we expand that across a range of industries and other things like that, I don't think we've really begun to see serious uh, Beijing seriously address this industrial upgrading. One more issue, you know, in, in this area is one of the things that we still see is that even a lot of the basic industry that we're talking about. And this is this is changing slowly every year, but it still is. China is producing distinctly lower quality, you know, and when I say lower quality, I'm not necessarily meaning it breaks more. I'm just saying on the value chain sure. um, that uh, that they're producing lower value items than, than a lot of other places. So in 20 years, but this again gets to some of these other issues of, of education, the amount of workers that are going to be there, all of these other kinds of things. Just because I, I don't think 6% is, is doable does doesn't mean that we're, you know some other number uh, you know beneath that isn't distinctly possible, but I think I do think six percent is distinctly optimistic. Gotcha. Um, you, you make some good points, obviously demographics, you know, lower value-added products and whatnot. I mean, all, all the points you pointed to there. If I sum it up, means lower productivity basically for the economy. Now, an interesting way around that potentially easier said than done but from an economic perspective is utilizing technology to drive efficiency and whatnot now we've seen a huge amount of policy push on technology recently we've seen fintech really in china take off in the last couple of years consumer has benefited enormously this year in particular from things like wechat obviously so interested in your view on technology in china and innovation and if they have the possibility to record higher growth by utilizing technology to drive productivity and efficiency you know that that is a, that is a very interesting and great question and and one of the things is is that even though there's a lot of these like structural and the policy i think has been going in the wrong direction there is at this point, uh, I think it's fair to say, an enormous amount of, of relatively low-hanging fruit that could be realized in the policy area that would really drive productivity. You know, people like to talk of fintech or online services or things like that in China as something that the government is, has championed. But Alibaba really grew almost out of the spotlight. And it wasn't until it became a behemoth that the government, you know, jumped on board and, and created this, this type of love fest. Same thing with online payments. And so one of the things that is very possible is that there's an enormous amount of low-hanging fruit for the government uh, to realize, to really drive productivity. If, you know, one of the things living in China you get to see every day is the enormous amount of 
innovative and, and creative entrepreneurial activity that goes on. So much of it, though, is dedicated to getting around government rules and avoiding, you know, government regulation. Sure. Not, you know, in building a business. Um, those types of um, those types of activities. So I think there is enormous potential there. And the best way I think that would sum it up is, and this is a great way I, I heard to describe China. China wants to be competitive without the competition. So many of their businesses, they still try to, and this is just domestically, forget, you know, international competition, things like that. So many of their businesses, they try to protect and they want to be competitive, but without the competition, without somebody pushing you forward, it doesn't make you become more efficient. If we talk about technology gains as a simple example, one of the things that that's going to imply is that that's going to imply significant reduction in labor demand. Sure. Okay. If you look at, you know, if you, if you look at a simple example of, you know, steel mills or something like that, you can have, you know, near fully automated steel mills right now. That's going to put a lot of low, low wage, low skilled Chinese labor out of work. So if you automate them, you bring in, you you know, you build the, the, the craziest new automated steel mill, you're either going to have a bunch of people sitting around doing nothing or you're going to put a bunch of people out of work. And that's, that's a decision right now. Beijing doesn't want to essentially that's a bridge they don't want to cross and there's lots of examples of that but we do see i think small examples of where this is taking place during 2016 and the early part of 2017 bank hiring in china has essentially been flat even though loans you know continue to go some of that's being sucked off into wealth management and other types of products but there is evidence that a lot of the investment banking securities asset management you know and commercial banking in china that there actually is you know pressure to they maintain st- relatively stable headcount and so this is there is evidence that maybe this is starting to trickle in but at the same time i don't think we've seen the large scale like, okay, if we do bring in millions of industrial robots and we're going to push productivity, what are we going to do with all of these coal miners that are 40 years old? You know, they're too old to teach them how to code. They don't want to move to another part of China, things like that. Sure. Um, And so I think if we talk about policy, one of the like low hanging fruits is how can we introduce greater competition? How can we introduce competitive pressures? Okay. They don't want to target the SOEs, but you know, SOEs return on assets in some cases is 1%, okay? You're not going to have a, a thriving corporate um, high-wage economy with, with numbers like that. And so I think on the positive, there is a lot of low-hanging fruit that they can reach very easily. On the negative side, it, it doesn't appear that there's a whole lot of desire to make these companies more competitive. Yeah. I mean, it's an interesting point. So I'd like to delve into that more with the SOEs, obviously. State-owned enterprises in China, there's some very large ones, obviously. As you said, if I look at it optically in the numbers of the listed companies, it does appear in most industries the returns from SOEs have been lower than private enterprises. But there are some industries as well that the state is very dominant and doesn't have that much domestic competition. So... One way from a reform perspective is to really open up, let international competition come in and get companies more efficient that way. Or another way is obviously try to improve them by technology, keep them relatively protected, and then hopefully open up over time when they're more efficient. Interested in your view, and it sounds like your view is probably they're going to go the latter, but specifically within the state, how do you see SOE reform playing out? So I think my, myself, you know, people try to cast this as, you know, an either or, let throw up in the markets, let the foreigners maraud as they want. 
or just keep it as you know a, a strictly state controlled enterprise i think there's all kinds of different things that you can do even if you want to phase it in even just you know in, in a lot of industries there are enough players that you could if you just allowed those players to be more competitive sure that you could create uh that you could create a lot more um competition you know if you look at the banking system there's you know there's a case being made as a simple example there's a case being made right now in the united states um that some of the major banks should be broken up into smaller into smaller enterprises it wouldn't be crazy and it's never going to happen but it wouldn't be crazy to say okay how can we let the you know the smaller and mid-sized banks in china compete more effectively with with the big ones should we you know cut the you know should we cut icbc in half things like that how do you introduce risk pricing you know there's all this talk in beijing of well you know we're not going to stand behind these loans but just about every time somebody defaults or something like that there's clearly some type of you know quasi bailout um, of of what takes place and so you know banks other investors aren't pricing those you know those bonds those loans other financial products appropriately Um, so as long as that continues to happen there's not going to be competition for you know either the the product innovation or the pricing innovation the market price because it's going to essentially be cut and paste Um, a lot of credit guarantee work in china is essentially are you an soe yes okay you pay one percent for a credit guarantee you're not an soe you pay you know two percent for a credit guarantee and clearly there's you know a lot more that you know a lot more ways to distinguish okay what's a good credit risk from a bad credit risk Um, so even within china if we don't want to throw open the market to foreigners there's all kinds of way to say we can better stimulate competition with our own firms than the clearly segmented tilted markets we've created. Yeah, it's a good point. It doesn't have to be a, a one shoe fits all approach, does it? They can do different approaches for different industries, see what works and just phase it in over time effectively. Yeah, and, and one one of the things you one of the things you've seen and this is there, there's good sides and bad sides. I mean in a way I do understand where they're coming from. A lot of financial services are moving away like the whole a lot of the wealth management products, trust, et cetera, are moving away from the banks because Alibaba and WeChat have essentially intermediated that relationship. You know, they used to go to the branch. Now the only thing you do is deposit money in there so you can scan with your WeChat account. And even WeChat and others are getting into, let's say, various types of financial services, you know, money markets, wealth management, lending, other things like that, because the banks were not competing. Mm. They were not going out and saying, hey, how can we make the online user experience better than, you know, they have to come into a bank and talk to us, okay? How, how can we provide, you know, there's, there's not a consumer ratings agency, so how do we provide consumers credit? Sure. That's where a lot of that activity came from is there was a market demand in the banks where and the, the, the big mainline SOEs were not meeting it. So part of this is how do you push, how do you create competition? And a lot of the SOEs, banks, and, and other companies like that, they simply don't feel the competitive push and so other other firms have jumped into that. So if you can even stimulate a more competitive environment, even with domestic firms, that would be a small step in the right direction. Gotcha. We talk more about the financial system and obviously use it as a good example there, but you are fairly well known on social media to be have had existing and ongoing concerns about debt in China and more specifically financial risks. 
So interested in your view at the moment, where, what you think the key financial risks in China, what specifically within China's debt pool do you find most problematic? And also, is this a large enough risk to be systematic? How, how worried do you think people should be about it? I think to borrow the Dick Cheney phrase, the unknown unknowns is probably the one that, that worries me. You know, if, if we look at the official bank, you know, and, and you know, let's say, well, off balance sheet type uh, type products, it's definitely an outlier for, you know, similar countries. And when I say similar countries, um, I'm not talking Germany or the U.S., Australia, et cetera. I'm talking, you know, Indonesia, Mexico, Russia, et cetera, com- countries at, at similar income levels, um, things like that. It's definitely a, a distinct outlier um, against those countries and even against. Um, developed countries, it's 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 relatively indebted. Uh, it's a relatively indebted country. That is that is definitely concerning. But I don't think that necessarily means we're going to we should be expecting fireballs to rain down on China anytime soon. What concerns me, and every time there's a default, these stories pop out, is there is significant material financial information that has has not been disclosed. Large amounts of debts, assets that had been sold that people thought were there, um, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is. But there is significant, significant differences in, you know, in the financial status. And the biggest one is, is essentially undisclosed debt. So if we take this and multiply this, even through just the SOEs, that is a significant difference to even what we think of China as a, as a uh, material, um, as their debt level. I think the unknown unknowns or the risk where you say, you know, is there something that can happen? Based upon what we know, it's stretched kind of like, you know, having double cheeseburgers on a regular basis. Your risk for heart attack goes up. Does that mean you're going to have a heart attack? No. Mm-hmm. Okay. Same thing with the Chinese financial system. Are the risks elevated because of that? And if they keep going in this direction, are the risks going to continue to elevate? And are they at someday going to have a heart attack? Probably. Doesn't mean they're going to have one now, tomorrow, next year. But when you have these, you know, information, you know, leaked out that, you know, surprises people, I think those are the ones that, that, that really catch people off guard and are really worrying because people are going, what else are, are we missing? And if you look at, you know, if you look at, you know, Stock Connect, Bond Connect, FDI, all of these kinds of things, I think it's pretty clear that these types of issues are no longer back burner unrelated issues to investors. They're material issues that are saying maybe we shouldn't be investing in China right now. Gotcha. I mean, what, what when I look at this year, and this year in particular, there's been a huge push from the PBOC, the banking regulator, the stock regulator, the insurance regulator for increased disclosure, regulatory coordination, trying to make the system less opaque from, from all perspective, in investors, from the regulator's perspective. And they really have done a lot. Now, outside of this, what measures would you like to see the government do at the moment to de-risk the financial system? Myself, one of the things that I think to me is what is noticeable about 2017 in particular is, to be fair, a lot of the SOEs, especially in heavy industry, if we talk about coal, steel, et cetera, um, some of those you know specific subsectors have seen debt stay essentially flat. Okay, um, If you look at corporate debt, it's probably, I think, up if I remember correctly, 6 to 8%. If I remember correctly, I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. But 6 to 8%, which, you know, when GDP, nominal GDP is up 11%, you know, that's that's a, that's a pretty solid win in, in relative deleveraging. 
What you see, though, is you see other areas that are growing very rapidly. Um, for instance, you know, household debt is up a total outstanding, I think, is up 25% for the year. And I think, you know, new mortgages were up 35% or something like that. You know, so we're talking very significant numbers. Other areas of, of the debt universe are continuing. So one of the things is, is if you look at uh, the stock of total social finance, a commonly used metric, relative to GDP this year, it's actually about flat. Um, But if you look at um, the new total social financing issue this year, it's up about 17%. Okay. So, you know, that again tells us that maybe there hasn't been any type of fundamental deviation from, from the path. Okay. And the reason I say this, one of the things that I think does concern me, and, and this is, and I, I, I want to be very careful here when I say this, I'm not drawing a clear parallel to the 2008 subprime crisis. I want to make that very clear. But one of the things that you see a lot of times is people think is there's a lot of, let's say collateralized lending whether it's you know um, I'm, I'm spending a million dollars on apartment and I only put down 250,000 you know companies do this but there's lending that is tied to assets and so assets I think there, there's a there's a significant risk that a lot of assets in China are significantly overvalued um, if, if you look at if you look at Shenzhen um, Shenzhen right now the apartment I live in is was built for an was built by an SOE company um, for mid and senior managers who probably make let's say 15,000 RMB a month and the apartment would probably sell for 15 million RMB that's a significant deviation from um, from you know what they can really afford and one of the things that we see is is that these mar- a lot of these markets are actually relatively weak um, a lot of the real estate markets in China you know we talk about these prices going up you know these crazy amounts and they're worth this amount of money but actually turnover or liquidity in these markets is actually incredibly low you have real estate markets in China which would probably take a hundred years to turn over um, we're talking incredibly low turnover rates in these and that is indicating that it's the market's probably a little more fragile because there's just not the depth of, of market turning this over which indicates that probably the asset value is probably a lot more fragile than the headline number that you might read in the newspaper and I think that applies to probably a lot of different individual markets in China. Gotcha. Let's dig a little bit more into the property market. I mean, obviously, you live in Shenzhen. It's In some ways, it's been an incredible success story, Shenzhen. It started when you and I came to Asia. It was probably a smallish fishing village almost, and now it's the, the poster child for China innovation, 20 million people, bigger GDP than Hong Kong. And as you said, property prices, although maybe on, on some metrics overvalued, have, have risen astronomically as a result of that. Now, as that relates to the property market, how do you see the overall market just outside of Shenzhen in general? Um, I mean, it seems like at the moment we almost have two speeds to the property market where upper tier cities will perform really well, lower tier cities less so. Interested in your view on, on property overall and property policy um, from the government? How do you think that's gone? Because obviously there has been quite significant tightening this year. So I think, you know, first of all, speaking of the property market in China um, is almost like speaking of the known universe. I mean, you know, it's how many billions of light years across and, you know, it's it's the same thing with the Chinese property market. There's, there's so many, it's so enormous um, when you're talking about, you know, let's say roughly 600 million, let's say, housing units, you know, 
you know, maybe 500 million housing units for all of China. To talk of the property housing market is quite an enormous task. I do think, and I, and I should preface everything I say with, one of the things is, is that there are very serious questions, even among lots of Chinese researchers, is the quality of data that we get and have for some time, since really, let's say 2000, sure. that we get about the real estate market. So there, there, everything I say, there should be somewhat of an asterisk um, next to specifically about prices. Um, individual unit turnover, I think we can we have more quality in that data. Um, the rest of it, though, I'd you know, put an asterisk next to it. There has been a long trend of tier one cities rising significantly faster than tier three cities, uh, tier two and tier three cities. I think within the past, let's say, 12 to 24 months, there has been a shift into greater demand for tier two and tier three. The sustainability of that, I think, is is validly debated. Mm-hmm. I don't have, it's, it's tough for me to draw a firm conclusion. You know, I know, I personally, know people that have you know live in Shenzhen and buy apartments in uh, in their hometown far away you know maybe it sits empty maybe you know um, a grandparent maybe their parent and their and their child lives there um, in a couple cases so you hear all types of different cases I'm sure we've all heard these you know read these stories about ghost cities and things like that and one of the things that may be happening you know it's, it's difficult to know for sure there's just not the data is that maybe there's not so much ghost cities as much as there is ghost blocks or floors of apartments that might be sitting empty, whether it's because they're not sold, whether it's because maybe somebody lives in Shenzhen and has bought, you know, a couple of apartments because they're, and they might move back at some day, but they're not living there now. And so one of the things is, is that it's, it's very difficult to know. I think one of the things though, that has happened, and this is something that's very interesting, but it's gotten, we've gotten very little attention is that the government uh, for about the past, let's say 18 months is engaged in a uh, very, a significant attempt to reduce and purchase up a lot of housing for social housing purposes that has essentially gone to purchase uh, housing inventory for for developers. It'll be interesting to see how much of that, how people that move into those, a lot of that has been resettlement from of people from rural to urban areas. It'll be very interesting to see how that experiment plays out going forward. Again, there's not widespread data on this. Um, there's some data to support this, but you know it's it's really difficult to tell. Um, but I do think one of the things that that you do fundamentally have, you know, we again, the average per capita income though in China is about four thousand dollars. I mean that remains the the norm in in, in China. Um, so when we talk about these astronomical real estate, we need to remember that you know there is still. It very validly significant room for urbanization but again that's one of those structural issues a lot of the residents that are left in rural areas um, you have a disproportionate population skew and what I mean by that is in urban areas you have let's say the 20 to 40s that have left rural areas um, and have m- migrated to work in offices or factories or things like that but because of HUCO regulation what has happened is, is in the rural areas or in smaller cities you most definitely 
currently have a disproportionate share of children and elderly. Okay. Okay. And so one of the things is when we talk about like low hanging fruit for urbanization, if we want to drive urbanization, consumption, things like that, higher education standards, one of the easiest things they could do would be allow families to basically educate the kids wherever the parents live. Okay. So that those kids that are still in rural areas can move to the urban areas. They can get the quality of education that they're not going to get in rural areas. There's a lot of evidence about how low those education levels are. And that's also going to spur demand for, hey, maybe now I can buy a second apartment in my urban area for my parents, for an extra bedroom, for my child, things like that. There's lots of low-hanging fruit like that. But right now, there is definitely a significant difference between the rural and urban areas and then also um, those tier two, tier three, and then let's say the tier ones of Beijing, Shenzhen, and Guangzhou, uh, and Shanghai. Gotcha. Okay. Given timing, I just wanted to finish with a, an overall statement. I mean, obviously, via social media, you're known as one of the key social media China bears. Um, <laughs> I've obviously spoken to you a lot, and I think, you know, it's interesting when we speak, I, I wouldn't necessarily class you as, as a China bear. So interested in your overall conclusive state on where we are in China. I mean, from what I've summed up from what you're saying is there are risks to the financial system. There's longer term risk to growth. I mean, 6% is, is a very high growth rate anyway. I don't think anyone really thinks a huge economy can grow at that for a prolonged period of time. But as you've said, there's still very low hanging fruit in a number of uh, key areas around policy, urban in to drive productivity, rural land reform, and things like that. So, so I guess just to clarify, where are you on China, both in the in the short and medium term? Are you in the ultra bearish financial crisis? Are you in the long structural growth area? Or what, what's your what's your final take on, on where we are? So, in the short to medium term, I, I definitely am more bullish, or I don't see the drop off that others might see. They've, they've definitely stimulated credit in the latter half of 2015 and then uh, through significant parts of 2016 and the first three quarters of 2017. That's going to have a carryover effect. We've seen strong growth from the 2016 um, credit push. The Even if there is no significant growth in credit going forward, we can expect that kind of to carry us over through, let's say, the first quarter, um, first four to maybe even through the, first, the second quarter of 2018. Um, so I think that's going to be, you know, relatively positive. If we look at how that's impacted, for instance, commodity prices, and you heard all this heavy industry, what what that has essentially done is, is those commodity prices have been pushed up by all, all of this liquidity. And that's essentially provided essentially some type of implicit subsidy or bailout of a lot of the heavy industries, which um, which saw those prices double and, and, and reap the benefits. So over the next 12 to 18 months, I think um, I would remain relatively bullish. Middle and longer term, let's say, you know, 20, uh, 2020, 25, 2030, fundamentally, we we absolutely cannot see the, these credit numbers continue to grow like this. Mm-hmm. I don't care what economy you are. I don't care what um, who runs it. You, you can't have, you know, credit um, in the household sector grow 30 percent annually and not create an enormous problem at some point in the future. You can't have credit growth growing at um, significantly faster than nominal GDP growth for long periods of time like we've seen. That is going to create real problems. One of the things that I that I, I think needs to happen is they need to develop a much more comprehensive plan. I think they've at least 
recognized its problem. I don't think they've maybe dealt with it or slowed it as much as, you know, some people think they have. But one of the things that it's, it seems right now is that they're just like putting out fires, you know, where, where they find them rather than saying, okay, we need to develop a much more comprehensive plan. It will be interesting to see if this financial super regulator that they, and it's not really a financial super regulator, it's more of a coordinator. It will be very interesting to see if that person or institution can come to a little bit better way of coordinating this. I'm a little bit skeptical in that unless they come up with a fundamentally different game plan, they're just going to have the same people sitting atop the financial institutions. But in the financial sector, these numbers can't continue to grow like this. On the more reform, if they choose to capture some of that low-hanging fruit, HUCO reform would be an obvious one. If they capture that, that would push urbanization that would increase education levels you know all kinds of other things that would happen from that um, people could get jobs in the city where they've been living for a decade sure. um, that is the type of thing that there's low hanging fruit that if they want to drive growth those are the types of competitive pressures that they need to put to the, put into the economy Gotcha. So, so I guess in summary, reform, watch the speed and pace and direction of the reform agenda and that should dictate effectively how successfully they can sustain medium high growth in the, in the foreseeable future. Yes, because we, we, you know, we talk about, you know, we talk about, uh, you know, we talk about the, the Alibaba's and the Tencent's of the world and there's, there's an enormous, you know, I live in Shenzhen, there's an enormous range of amazing things people are doing. At the same time, as a, as a slice of the overall China Chinese economy, those companies remain, you know, almost infinitesimal um, as as a slice, and so those are good. Those are good, great places to start. But you're going to have to say, okay, how do we go in into a steel company and slash labor labor headcount fifty percent? I mean, you have to do that if you're going to get, I mean, labor, you know, steel workers in, you know, in Japan and in Europe and the United States make, you know, probably five to 10 times what, you know, a steel worker in China does. If you want to get to that level, you have to go in there and say, we're going to slash headcount 50%. How do we have a comprehensive plan to train them, provide a social security system, whatever it is, so that we can go in and say, we can, we can slash these numbers to bring our steel plant up to Japanese, U.S., you know, Western European standards. Gotcha. Chris, fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me, David. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the interviewees and guests featured and may not reflect those of Foresight Bar Limited or Foresight Bar Asia. This podcast is produced for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Clients of Foresight Bar or Foresight Bar Asia may have investments in the companies mentioned in this podcast.